We're happy to have this episode sponsored by Real Mushrooms. You probably already know about some of the great benefits of adding mushrooms to your diet, like better sleep, greater mental clarity, and a stronger immune system, but not all mushroom products are equal. Real Mushrooms is the real deal. Many mushroom companies harvest the mushroom and the grain it's growing on. Real Mushrooms products contain no grains or starch fillers. They're organic, cultivated naturally, and third-party verified for beta-glucans, the compound that makes them so valuable as a supplement. They even have a science and medical team of doctors who ensure that Real Mushrooms meets the highest standards. What I personally love is how informative their website is. Have questions about what mushroom is right for you? They have a robust blog with articles ranging from women's health to what mushrooms are most beneficial to your pet. Want to boost your immune system? Have better sleep and feel more calm? Grab the link in the show notes and get 25% off of your first order. Curiously enough, acupuncture is not just sticking needles into people. It's part of a coherent and observation-based medicine that experienced practitioners of the art have handed down over the centuries. I'm Michael Max, your host and guide of Everyday Acupuncture. Listen in as we explore how you can apply the principles of this ancient medicine in your everyday life. This episode of Everyday Acupuncture is sponsored in part by the Seattle Institute of East Asian Medicine. Seattle Institute has been training exceptional clinicians since 1994. The program at Seattle Institute represents a modern take on the age-old model of apprenticeship training. One experienced teacher working with a small group of students focused on the clinical interaction with a patient. Using this approach not only provides students with the highest level of clinical training available today, it also grounds the program in the traditional methodologies used for centuries in the training of medical professionals. Seattle Institute of East Asian Medicine is accepting applications now for the master's and doctoral programs beginning in September 2018. For more information, go to www.siom.com. Edu, or visit the show notes page for this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Everyday Acupuncture. My guest today is Rebecca Rotstein, and I'm sitting down with her for a conversation on bone health. We're coming, actually, she's coming live from New York City. So there's the possibility of some New York City sound artifacts popping in while we're here. You know, Chinese medicine is based on the pillars of acupuncture, herbal medicine, food and diet, and physical practices, as well as psycho-emotive and spiritual cultivation. And today, we're going to be talking about the physical practices. You know, a lot of people think that the bad news on a bone scan means that you get a lifetime supply of some kind of pharmaceutical. But really, low bone density is not a Fosamax deficiency. And what's more, bones are living structures that respond to what you eat and the forces and the stresses that you put on them. It's really common that you hear, hey, you should get some more exercise to improve your bone health, but rarely are you told what kind of exercise to get. Rebecca has a background in Pilates, sports medicine, and she's studied with some interesting characters like Gil Headley, and she's trained at the Baral Institute. So I suspect She's got some interesting perspectives on the fascia, that's the connective tissue, and how it relates to your bones. Rebecca, welcome to Everyday Acupuncture. Thanks so much, Michael. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm really psyched to talk with you about all this. So (laughs) give us a little background. How did you get started with looking at bone health and helping people manage their bone health with, with physical activity? Well, I have, I think what's kind of a classic story is it all comes back to myself, (laughs) basically. I was diagnosed with osteoporosis when I was 28. Um, So I was already working in the movement field. And when I got this diagnosis, it was a big shock. 
partly because A, I was unusually young and B, because I had been a dancer. And so I had a different identity with my body, a very strong identity with my body. So this took on a whole other level of meaning for me personally. The initial investigation and just research into, oh my goodness, what do I do for my own body led me to explore as much as I could and understand as much as I could and look at all the research that was out there as well. And then started developing workshops and helping other professionals, especially. And then that led to um, building this exercise program and system of movement designed to help and fortify your bones. Yeah, I mean, that's amazing. You would think someone who's a dancer and someone who's involved with activity would naturally have good bones, right? I mean, that's the first place my mind goes. Someone like you at age 28 with your background, how could that happen? Actually, yes and no. So I think it depends on the type of movement or exercise background you have. So say you are a soccer player, that's probably going to be a different scenario than if you're a long distance runner or if you're a gymnast or a dancer. And the reason has to do with body mass. And it's we're finding more and more incidences now of people with very low body mass, uh, especially teenagers, being at risk for osteoporosis later in life or maybe not so later in life because of something that has been called exercise, uh, excuse me, athletic energy deficit. So the intake, uh, your caloric intake is not enough to meet your energy expenditure. So in other words, you're exercising so much, but you're not getting enough calories to meet the needs. So it's really common in these long distance runners, dancers, and in gymnasts. You don't see that sort of thing so much in other types of athletes. This is really interesting. We have this idea in Chinese medicine that there are conditions that are due to excess. There's too much of something and there are conditions due to deficiency. There's too little of something. And often, yeah, and often I'll see people that are very athletic and on the outside, Mm -hmm. they look strong, Mm -hmm. right? But I look at their tongue or I feel their pulse and it's like, oh my God, they are, they're running on empty. Underneath, they just don't have it. I think that's actually a great point. And it's also a major asset that you have in Chinese medicine, because you're looking at all these different points, the tongue, the pulse points, all these different aspects that we don't typically see in typical Western medicine. And even when you're just analyzing and looking at a body that's just straight in front of you, until very similarly, from a movement perspective, we can look at some very athletic looking person, or I want to say buff looking person, or let's say even a football player, loads of muscle mass. And then you have them do start doing certain types of movement and it reveals the deficiencies. It reveals where, um, where things are, are missing and what, uh, is, what are some of the missing links in their movement patterns. So talk to us a bit about movement. And, you know, again, it's really common to hear, oh, you've got some issues with your bones, get some exercise, get some movement. But really clearly, as, as we've already discussed here, certain kinds of movement by themselves, it's, it's not going to help you. In fact, it might even hurt you. So how, how can people start to think about, you know, like, like with diet, you want a full, well-rounded diet. Mm-hmm. How do you get a well-rounded movement diet? Sure. Well, I think you hit on a couple points, first of all, is that people here, they need to exercise, but one of the biggest absences of information is telling people specifically what. So when it comes to the to building your bones and having movement for bone health, there's a couple different aspects. There is the need for weight-bearing exercise, so literally just bearing your body's weight. So swimming does not constitute weight-bearing exercise. That's not to say you shouldn't swim. Swimming can be great because it also uses your muscles. And the use of muscles creates a pulling force on the connective tissue and therefore on the bones. And that's how they strengthen. Um, But you must have, uh, especially when you're younger, it's really important to be having jumping exercises and impact movement. So I don't even want to just call it exercise, it's movement, right? So when you're a child, you don't think, oh, I have to go do my exercise. You think, oh, I'm going to go play outside. So sometimes there's a reframing, yeah, of, of what this all means. But 
the the research has shown that weight bearing, so loading your body's weight against gravity, and this also includes crawling. You know, when you're walking on your hands, you're doing handstands, you're doing cartwheels, you're loading the forces into your wrist, which is really important because, well, we'll talk a little bit later about why the wrists are important uh, in terms of bone health. But so you also need the strength of the muscles and the pull of the muscles, and you need that impact. So the impact forces are what remind your bones as well to regenerate. But along those lines, it's also just about different types of movement. So you want to be as varied, varied, you want to be as varied as possible. You want to get uh, changes in load forces. And the interesting thing is that we often will be doing this in a well-rounded exercise program, but so often, or movement lifestyle, but in our modern day life, we've moved away from that. We're not doing the types of lifting uh, in urban societies that you might do on a farm where you're moving hay and you're, you're uh, carrying tools. We also have moved so far away in our modern day society from playing outside. Kids are now sitting around playing on their iPhones and playing video games. So those activities that used to be part of normal daily life are not there anymore. And we've gotten into so much structure of, oh, I need to find a way to fit in exercise, where it used to be this was more of a part of your life. So the answer is that movement, all sorts of movement needs to be occurring. There are different specific types of movement for your bones, but we want to a we want to move in different directions. We want to move at different speeds. We want different loads and forces. And the more you surprise the bones so that you move them in the ways that they're unaccustomed to, the stronger they become. Surprise the bones. Oh my God, I love that that term. You know, it, it's interesting. I I heard of a study a while back where they took women who were cleaning rooms in hotels mm. and they, they divided them into two groups. And one group, they gave them some sort of like recommendations on like how to lift things and just, you know, ways of protecting your back and stuff. And the other group, they gave them this education and how their work was actually exercise. You know, they're spending all day, they're lifting, they're moving, they're bending, they're squatting, they're using all these muscles in all these different directions. And they they basically reframed their work as exercise. And then they went back and checked things like cholesterol and weight and muscle gain and things like this. And the women who were told, they got this idea in their head that their work was exercise, their blood chemistry was better, their cholesterol numbers changed, they had more muscle mass, and they lost weight. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, I love hearing you talk about going out and playing. I mean, I remember as a kid, and God, thinking about impact and the stuff we used to do on our bicycles, holy smokes. Right. We had lots of running, jumping, climbing. We We moved in all these directions. I mean, we were like all over the place. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't thought about that as setting the body and setting the bones up for like a lifetime of good health. Sure. Absolutely. And it, also you brought up a really interesting point with the study you mentioned, which is it's, it sounds like there is a relationship with perception that they were still doing the same activities and yet there were physiological changes. And I think that brings in a really important point as well about the impact of self-efficacy and perception. And that's one of the things that I've really worked hard at because when you have something like osteoporosis or any kind of diagnosis for that matter, the one of the biggest challenges is the fear right? And the mindset of, oh my gosh, I'm limited. I'm um, in danger. I'm threatened and I'm fearful. And I see this over and over again with osteoporosis where people will contact me and say, I'm terrified. I just found out I have a, a 
just found out I'm diagnosed with osteoporosis. And I'm so scared that I could fracture as I walk down the street now. And I always ask, well, how did you feel yesterday before you heard this? And they say, I felt fine. So the only difference between yesterday and today is your perception, essentially. And yet that perception leads to a whole cascading effect, changes in walking pattern, changes in movement. Um, You can even think very simply of any older person that you know who's ever fallen And after they've fallen, there is a greater fear of falling, which research has shown leads actually to more falls. But you'll notice that there's a shuffling that will occur. Why? Because they're afraid of falling. So the fear can really impact your movement, which can impact your bones bones and apparently other aspects of your physiology. Wow. So this... It's just not so simple as eat this or do this exercise or take this drug. It it really right. gets complicated. Right. I, Very true. Yeah. So I recently had someone send me uh, a link to go check out this, uh, what's his name? Uh, Gil Headley. Mm. Mr. Fascia guy. What? Wow. <laughs> this guy's a mad <laughs> Pretty brilliant. Pretty brilliant. Really, really brilliant. Yes. I want to hear more about the connection of, well, <laughs> no, no pun intended, the connection of the fascia to the bones and what the fascia has to do with bone health. Sure. Well, I started studying with Gil, uh, let's see, in I think about 12 years ago, and I did seven cadaver dissections with him, and is, he really changed my, my outlook on the body. I mean, it just it blew my mind. And he introduced me to the inner workings of the fascia and the different types of fascia, this connective tissue that runs throughout your entire body and comes in different consistencies, if you will. And there's different types of fascia. Uh, it's often confused to be thought of as saran wrap. And there's one type of fascia that has that uh, component. But there's, you know, there's fascia that is the adipose, the, the, and the loose areolar, areolar fascia. Um, then there's the fascia that's like strapping tape that like around the thoracolumbar area of your back. Um, and they just, the list can keep growing. And so there's different types of fascia, but one of the things that really blew my mind over the last number of years and also studying more of it, um, like with Robert Schleip and, and so forth is discovering that the principles of fascia are so similar to the principles of bone. And this is because when you look at your four classic types of of tissue in the body, connective tissue encompasses the uh, blood, bone, and what we think of as connective tissue. So they both come from the same origins. And therefore, they act in the same way. They have similar remodeling uh, process, if you will, in the sense that they both can be strengthened and they both can be weakened. So the more you use it, the the better it gets. The less you use it, the worse it gets, in a sense. Um, the other thing, though, about that is that fascia and bone tissue both respond to stress, but they also have a tensile and a compression component, uh, or I should say tension and compression need. So is really fascinating because they, they work hand in hand. They're very similar. And also when we used to talk about, oh, it's muscle pulling against your bone, which is what strengthens it. Well, no, muscle doesn't attach to bone like a piece of Velcro. <laughs> Despite what we might want to think, it actually attaches to bone via the connective tissue, and which is a form of fascia. So through that conduit of that connective tissue, through that fascia, if you will, that's how the muscle literally gets its tensile pull on the bone and signals it in a, in a cellular mechanism to fortify and, and regenerate and strengthen. This is more complicated than most of us think about. Which is, which is why we usually just say movement. <laughs> So talk to us a bit about movement. I mean, you're using some terms that I understand here, you know, adipose and tensile and and things like that. But for our listeners that are going, okay, what do I actually do or what should I do or 
what can I be thinking about in terms of my movement? What are some suggestions? I mean, other than going to your website and checking out what you have, and we're going to get into that a little bit later. So folks, don't worry. We got great resources for you. But for those of you that might be driving in your car right now or washing the dishes and listening to this, what are some things that people can start doing right now that would be helpful to them? Pushing, pulling, (laughs) squatting, uh, extending your back. So I would say arching your back, working your back muscles, but we're talking your upper back, not so much of just throwing out your lower back. Balance exercises are also really important. We'll come back to that. But basically, what what do these types of things move, mean? How about planks? Um, crawling. Can you crawl even with your so, – so just basic crawling patterns. Could you crawl forward? Could you crawl backward? Could you crawl with your knees lifted? Try that. All of a sudden, that's a huge amount of load that transmits from your arms into your trunk. Even just going on your hands and knees and lifting your knees, all of a sudden, immediately, you're going to feel that connection into your gut as well. When I say your gut, I don't mean uh, literally your small intestines. I mean your belly. Um, You can uh, also, when you're standing, other things that you can do, simple things like heel drops. So getting that small bit of impact. If you don't have osteoporosis, jumping for sure. Uh, lunges. So in general, when we're talking about osteoporosis versus just trying to improve your bones, there is a little bit of difference because of some of the precautions, which we'll come back into. But in general, you know, you want to strengthen your bones, you move them. So what's been really interesting is seeing a a revitalization, if you will, um, a renaissance of interest in just old school traditional movement patterns, squatting, lunges, what people are calling functional movement, things that are going to help you and apply to your daily life. I was about to ask the question of, well, how much time a day or a week should you do this? But it doesn't sound like this is something that you're going to you know, put on your calendar. I'm going to do my bone movements now. This sounds like something that we incorporate into our everyday being in the world. Well, it's funny you say that because I am interested in working on ways to get people to actually put it on their calendars because I because they don't necessarily incorporate it into their lives, but I'm trying to figure out ways to get them to incorporate it into their lives and also put it into their calendars. So, you know, there are certain things that you're not going to be able to just do every single day um, in your morning routine uh, that you would want to do. So for instance, getting yourself to a gym or somewhere where you could have pull-up bars or somewhere where you could really be doing intense, some intense pulling. Now, that may sound intimidating to some people, but it's really, really, uh, it's, it's very accessible. And in fact, I have an 80-something-year-old client. I think she's now 84, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe she's even 85. I have a video of her um, that I just posted last week pulling herself up uh, with bars. This is not something that is only accessible to certain people. This is something that we can all do, but sometimes we do have to make specific time and dedicate time to it. So I agree that it is something that has to be part of your life, but we also have to make an effort to to incorporate it into our lives. I'm just marvelously struck by the depth that you approach this. It's um, it's stunning. Mm. Well, what's interesting is that, you know, I'm talking very simplistically of of things that that anybody can do and ways that we can incorporate into our lives. But what I've also really worked on over the past number of years is putting together exercises that comprise a system that align the bones and align the joints in order to optimize the forces to transmit through them. 
So in other words, we can do all these exercises, exercises, let me rephrase that. We can do all these exercises that I'm talking about, but there is something also to be said about the way in which you do them and the specificity in which you do them. And that's one of the things that I've been working on for a number of years is building a program that identifies more embodiment and more awareness so that when you go out and go climb the steps of the subway here in New York City, or get in and out of your car, or lift your groceries, your body is best prepared to be doing those activities. And then your joints and your bones can reap the benefits uh, in the best way possible. So it sounds like you've got this, this program that you've Put together through your own experience, through research, through all the study you've done, all the experience you've had working with people. And again, it's not just about movement. It's it's where your joints are in space. It's how different things pull on other things. And as people learn some of these basic principles, regular movement in their everyday life changes because they're moving their body differently. They're inhabiting their body differently. Do I have that right? Exactly. You have that completely right. And I suspect people's balance really changes after that It does, too. but it's also, so there's two parts of the balance. There is exactly what you're saying. You're inhabiting the body and we're doing balance exercises and exercises that you might not even have thought of as balance, but it's also the way that we're exactly what you were saying, the way we're aligning the joints best prepares you so that balancing isn't so hard. So we've awakened the receptors that, is, that assist you in balance. We've oriented and repositioned the joints so that the muscles that should be contracting are best able to contract and have already warmed up to know what to do so that the time by the time you're trying to do a classic one-leg balance exercise, for instance, it's 10 times easier than it was when you first walked in through the door. Wow. Do you see people's posture change? with doing this work? Definitely. I'll bet you do. Yes, yeah. most definitely. You know, it's funny. I'm not a big fan of the word posture. I use it because it's the familiar term that we can all speak the same language with. But what most people think of as posture is that military stance where the shoulders are back and the chest is forward and it creates tension. And not the type of tension that I was talking about previously, which is uh, a good tension in the body. You want a certain form of tension. You want, uh, with the fascia especially, there's a, a matter of tension of pull that should be there. I'm talking about excess energy expenditure tension, unnecessary tension. And people who have gone through body work or rolfing are familiar with after having been worked on, it's not so hard to stand up because the joints are better aligned. And that's essentially what we're doing through movement in our, our Buff Bones program as well, is that when you release the extra and unnecessary areas of tension, which for many people is, say, in the front of the chest, which rounds the shoulders forward, uh, just as a simple example, then the other parts of the body, like the back, which might have been overstretched, is able to firm up and support you in a better way. So for, in other words, when you remove these excess areas of tension, you're able to target the areas of the body that should be uh, working harder, that might have been too slack. So it's, it's, it goes back to what you're talking about with deficiencies and excess with Chinese medicine. It, it really correlates in the same way. So... Back to the idea of posture, you know, when we think about just posture, let's think about instead of how the body aligns and how it can best find ease, but be as upright and functioning as possible. Makes sense to me. Wow. I want to come back to something that you mentioned earlier, that there's a way of working with your movement and your body because you want to stay healthy and you want to increase your good habits, keep your bones in good shape. And then there's the sort of movement and work that you do for people who already might be experiencing osteoporosis and they need to be more careful. Right. What are the differences here? The difference it has to do with 
certain areas of caution, but not being too overly cautious. And I think that's been one of the detriments of at least probably the last decade is understanding what these, quote, contraindications are. What are the things that people with osteoporosis should be avoiding? The main thing has to do with an excess for excess bending forward of the back. So excessively rounding your back, which could lead potentially to additional or new or additional fractures of the spine in somebody with osteoporosis. However, I think some of that has gotten extrapolated to such an extreme that people have felt like they can't move their backs at all. And that has led to rigidity, which doesn't help anybody and can actually lead to other problems as well. So we have to, though, when we're working with people with osteoporosis, we have to guide them how to work safely. So one of the things is... They're not going to be doing certain exercises like, for instance, in a Pilates class or a yoga class, there are a number of of movements where the back is excessively rounded and especially where the feet are thrown up overhead and the hips are up in the air so that all the body weight is on a rounded back, if that makes sense. Like all the body weight is up on the rounded shoulders area. That could potentially lead to a fracture and that's something that we don't want to do. Pilates has a lot of those types of movements in the traditional mat work. When you're using the equipment, it's a little bit different. Uh, Yoga has some, not as much though. So that is something that people with osteoporosis should be avoiding. And they want to minimize, depending on their own medical history, they will likely want to minimize the back rounding exercises. But the things that they then need more of are back extension. So exercises that strengthen the upper back, strengthen exercises that strengthen the hips, exercises that strengthen the wrists, particularly because these are the three most common areas of fracture for people with osteoporosis. And it's not just a fluke that that's the area. These are the three areas of the body that uh, most easily lose bone mass because of the type of bone and the, the metabolic activity that occurs there. So for those with osteoporosis, we have more of a focus on, all right, what are the things that we're going to stay safely within? And also, what are the things that we really need to focus on? And that I have found to be extremely helpful for people psychologically as well, so that they're not just focusing on, oh, I can't do this. Oh, I can't do that. And then they feel completely excluded. Instead, the message is, all right, Here's our task at hand. Here are the things that we're going to best uh, that we're going to work on for you to best improve your bones, and also we're going to bring more balance programming, and we're going to bring in some impact where it's appropriate. And we're still going to be looking at the full body approach. How do your feet relate to your neck, to your head? How do your arms relate to your pelvis? All these things. Because it's not just a piecemeal, let's work at this part of the body. It all has to be integrated as a whole. Yeah. Well, and it sounds, too, that you're looking at what can be done instead of what can't be done. Absolutely. You earlier on mentioned the importance of the wrists. I would, would like to come back to that and, and hear more about it. I, I don't usually hear people talking about wrist health and how you need to take care of your wrists in in this situation. People think hips more and backs when they're thinking osteoporosis, not wrists. It's like, what? Wrists? Exactly. Fill us in here. So, and and I'm so glad you you brought me back to this because the the greatest relationship to the, the biggest concern people have, and especially epidemiologically and in the medical system, the biggest concern that they have with osteoporosis are hip fractures. And that's because of the correlation with mortality in the elderly population. So it's a major public health crisis. However, the spine. Are, is the most common site of fractures. And those are, they, they don't have the same correlation with, uh, with hospitalization or with mortality, but it is a concern because it affects people's quality of life and people sometimes need to have, have surgeries. The wrist, though, is the third most common site of fracture. And yet it's the most common site in early postmenopause. So when people are all worried about hip fractures, it's for good reason. But you know what? When you're in your 50s and you hear that you have osteoporosis, the likelihood of you fracturing a hip at that age is very small. The danger and the concern that your physician has 
is down the road. The most, the biggest concern at that point right then should actually be about the risk. Why? Because at that point, there seems to be some sort of changes that occur in balance. And I haven't seen research pointing out exactly what, but I suspect it has to do with some kind of hormonal shifts that occur uh, in the early postmenopausal um, phase. And as that happens, balance gets impaired and you trip. You trip, what do you do? You instinctively protect your most vital organs, including your brain. So you don't want your head to hit. Exactly, you outstretch your wrist, your hand. But the most common fracture then is known as a Collie's fracture, which is at the end of one of the bones in the wrist, in the radius bone. So, you know, you can, I bet you every one of, of the listeners here can think back to somebody that they know who's experienced a wrist fracture. Not to mention people in the public arena uh, that have experienced wrist fractures as well. So this is something that I think we need to pay much more attention to. Also, because when people talk about and when the literature talks about weight bearing and when blogs and websites talk about weight bearing, they usually are just talking about upright, weight bearing in an upright position. But it completely overlooks what I think is so critical important, which is weight bearing through your wrist. One of the great ways that you strengthen your wrists is actually bearing weight through them. And we've lost this ability unless you're, you know, unless you're in a, you're, unless you're a yogi, for instance, or you, your movement practice happens to involve crawling or being on your hands, or perhaps, you know, if you are cleaning floors, you're familiar with being on your, on your hands and knees. So many people are not. And there's a tremendous mm-hmm. amount, there's a tremendous benefit that happens through bearing weight through your wrist and not just to the bones, but also to the relationship neurologically and fascially, as we we're talking about, into your trunk. You know, I'll tell you that some of the best ab exercises and the best toning that I can do for my belly is by crawling and doing work on my, my hands and knees with my knees lifted, not doing crunches, not even doing, um, uh, rolling exercises where you would think that you're working your abdominals. Crawling on the floor. Yeah. Wow. Crawling on the floor with your knees lifted. So I'm not telling, I'm not recommending that people start off doing that because there might be some issues with people's wrists. There might be some other things that people have to work up to, but. But like a bear crawl, right? Yeah. Because the way the forces transmit from your arms, your arms are really a direct connection into your trunk, fascially, as well as through the muscles. And that connection works and triggers the abdomen. Well, and I'm thinking about shoulders, I'm thinking about clavicle, I'm thinking about rib cage. Exactly. So my goal is also to get people doing a lot more on on their hands and knees. And, you know, one of the big complaints people say is, oh, I can't, it hurts my wrist. And that's why, you know, we have a number of exercises and releases that people can do that literally within 30 seconds remove that discomfort in their wrists. And then they can actually reap that, those benefits of, of, of placing weight through their hands. And then they feel better as well because they feel more capable. Exactly. Then the fear goes away. Where the fear, I don't know if it goes away, but it diminishes. You know, this is really, you know, I, I mean, I bring my Chinese medicine mind to this. And one of the fascinating things about the wrists is there's a particular kind of acupuncture point. It's in the wrist and it's in the ankles, which is basically the same joint, right? And they're called source points. And the source points have a very direct, nourishing, tonifying effect on the internal organs. Interesting. Oh. Isn't it? Yeah. And I'm listening to you talk about the importance of the wrists and how it, how it connects to the, you know, to the arms, to the trunk, to the core. And I'm thinking, wow, there's acupuncture points that go deep inside the body mm. and they're located in the wrists. I'm going to look that up because that makes so much sense, especially when you say nourishing. I've gotten to the point uh, in the past year and a half as I've done so much more work with my hands. And what I'm talking about is on the ground, uh, crawling and, and use of my hands and handstands and such, that I need to do this type of work almost every day because it, it literally feels like nourishment. It, it releases my neck. It helps me stand taller. It takes away some of the tension in my back. It lets me feel more connected and it feels like it's part of my daily food. (laughs) 
Well, we often think of food when we think of nourishment. And, you know, we've got this idea that we're supposed to have a varied diet, but when we look at what our movement is, we often have a very unvaried diet there. I want to jump into the food thing for just a moment. You know, a lot of a lot of people hear, oh, I got issues with bones, I better take calcium. What are your thoughts on supplementation for the bones? And, and what are your thoughts on just plain good old food, what we should be eating and what we might want to avoid? You know, I personally don't, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit of my opinions. I don't give recommendations of daily allowance and what people should or shouldn't do in part because contraindications that certain people have with their, their own, their own medical experience. So for instance, I'll give you an example. Calcium is, has become highly controversial in fact, for so many years we've been we've been told drink milk it does a body good right the old the old uh, slogan from years ago yeah amazing marketing yeah right and yet interestingly in the past eight years there have been reports including from uh, the U.S. Preventative Service Task Force warning about uh, calcium or saying that. Uh, even premenopausal women and men may not benefit from calcium supplements. We've seen research showing now high calcium intake that can increase risk of kidney stones and stroke and heart attacks. And so should people have calcium in their diet? Absolutely. Calcium is vital for the bones and it's part of the, the silo, uh, the storage facility within the bones. It makes up about, uh, I think it's 99% of uh, the calcium in your body is stored in your bones. And then the remaining 1% is, is traveling through your bloodstream and it's needed for all sorts of vital organ functioning and nerve transmission. So is calcium important? Absolutely. The question is, how much should we be supplementing? How should we be getting from your diet? And usually most sources say, as much as you can get from your diet is always best. Why? Because it's not a reductionist approach. You know, when you're getting, when you're eating an orange, for instance, it's not just vitamin C you're getting, you're, you're reaping the benefits of all these other nutrients that are in there. You're getting fiber as well. So the same thing with taking just a single element like calcium in a supplement, you're going to be better off absorbing or getting the calcium from your diet. Now, the question is, how much should you be getting from your diet? How much should you be supplementing? Part of this depends on your age and part of this depends on what sources you decide to listen to. And so, for instance, we do know that calcium is required along with, or let me rephrase that. In order for calcium to be absorbed, you have to have vitamin D and magnesium, as well as another, uh, as well as a host of other vitamins and minerals. Calcium alone can't be absorbed. So vitamin D, for instance, along with magnesium, serve as the gateway essentially to unlock uh, the door to allow calcium to get absorbed into the intestines. Now, the amount is the question. And then going back to what I was saying of my hesitancy in, in giving recommendations is that in the last couple of years, after vitamin D became the wonderkin of the medical world, it's the answer to everything. It's now starting to fall the other way, that there is concerns about excess vitamin D. And after that became, uh, the wonderkin has become vitamin K2. Um, vitamin K is found in dark leafy greens. However, if you're on blood thinners, it could be uh, life-threatening if you're, if you're uh, taking K2 supplements. So that's why I say I think it's very individual, and I think that people need to be working within the confines or at least having some kind of medical um, direction before they, they are taking large amounts of supplements. Because Sure, we need to have some supplementation, but I think it also, we should be under the care of somebody or some kind of person that has the expertise and knowing what is involved with that individual. You know, this is great. You sound exactly like a Chinese medicine practitioner. <laughs> oh, that's the greatest honor. Thank you. And the reason I say that is so often people will come in and they'll go, you know, should I do this? Should I do that? Or can my you know, friend take the herbs, uh, you know, that you're giving me? Or what's the treatment for, you know, X, Y, Z? And the answer is always, it's always, it depends. And it depends, right? Because we're all individual. Yep. No one actually matches the top of the bell curve. Right. 
you know, for any given population, our individual variability Mm -hmm. is profound. And so it's really important to do things on a case by case basis to really look into what works for you individually and and to know how you know what's working for you. And so it's helpful to have someone who like really knows their nutrition. If you want to talk about how much calcium and, you know, even along those lines, exactly what you said um, reminds me of a, a term that I think is important for people also to familiarize themselves with, which is the word bioavailability. So when people talk mm. about certain, uh, let's take calcium, your original question, you know, is it in milk? Well, the bioavailability of calcium in milk, meaning the ability of the body to absorb that is generally less than it is in, say, dark leafy greens. But there, in terms of quantity, there's a lot more calcium in milk. It's just not available. Right. So it just and and you take somebody who's lactose intolerant, and you know you're telling them to drink milk. Well, actually, their body literally can't absorb it. And then there's the different components of the milk. Not to get complicated, but you know, is it the casein? Is it the whey? What are there might be a one area of the milk that the body isn't able to tolerate. So I think that it again goes back to it depends and it also is a lot more complicated than just take calcium or drink milk. Right. So if you're reading something on the internet that says, Oh, the top three reasons you should XYZ, you should probably go deeper yes. than that. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Great. <laughs> Well, speaking of going deeper, Mm -hmm. tell us what you're doing. Tell us a little more about your website, the work you teach, the DVD you have, how people can get access to doing this stuff that you're doing and uh, incorporate this into their life. Sure. So I created a program called Buff Bones uh, many years ago, and it became like a platform for me to use to describe and and explain the best, what I considered the foundation of what people need for movement for their bones, but especially for those with osteoporosis who weren't sure what to do. And it incorporates all these principles that I've been referring to of what are the the ways that bone is strengthened, what is what are the ways that you prevent fracture as well based on the research that's out there and using different modalities from Pilates to strength training to different types of functional movement to neurological patterns uh, to rehabilitative style exercises. And it's in my mind, it's it's part of the big picture of what people should be doing for movement for their bones, specifically once they have experienced any kind of bone loss. And my goal was really to fill in the missing link that I saw of people that are middle-aged, like 50s, 60s, who are completely capable of doing exercise and movement, but are no longer looking for the boot camp style workout, are not uh, necessarily interested in CrossFit, um, who are though way more capable than doing exercises for seniors where they're just having to sit in a chair and move their ankles around. So I was trying to fill that need that I saw where these people I felt like were, were very left behind. So that's the basis of what the Buff Bones program is, but it's part of a bigger picture because I also believe that people do need heavy loads and I believe that we should be lifting weights. I mean, I've been doing it now ever since I was diagnosed with osteoporosis. I still work with my trainer once a week and I still have my own practice that I do on my own. So there's different aspects that I think that people need to do, but Buff Bones I find to be a really fantastic foundation because it gives you the embodiment, the sense of how to inhabit your body. It gives you the awareness. It helps free up uh, the joints and yet also figure out where the support needs to be in your body. So it helps mobility. It helps you with stability. It improves balance. It improves strength. It makes people feel better. It makes people stand taller. It was used uh, in, we did a study, a pilot study with Hartford Hospital's Bone and Joint Institute last year uh, using a seated program that actually was specifically designed for seniors. And so waiting for the, the results to come back on that. But we've seen, so we've seen also though, just in terms of actual case studies and feedback of people 
increasing their bone density, which is surprising because I never have claimed that this will be the answer to increasing your bone density. But that's also because I don't believe that bone density is the number one answer. You know, what are you really trying to do? Is it to increase your bone density or are you really trying to avoid fractures? So there's more to fracture avoidance than just bone density. Um, it's how you move. It's how you avoid falling. It's how the forces can, can transmit through your bones. So what, what's happened is we have these classes, uh, these Buff Bones classes, and there's an instructor certification. And on our website, you can go and just find an instructor in, in various states throughout the country, in I think 25 or more countries throughout the world. And then also online, you know, we have a DVD that people can do and they can stream it as well. And uh, currently working on new ways to get uh, this information to as many people as possible so that people can make this part of their daily lives and really take ownership of their bodies, not have to just be dependent on uh, on what other people are doing or saying, but letting you be the owner of, of your body and your health. With some guidance from you and the people that you work with. That, yeah, that's Fantastic. So I'll make sure that the show notes page has links and everything they need to find you. And, and if there's any information, studies, whatever that you'd like to give uh, people access to, you send me those links and I'll make sure they get up on the show notes page as well. Great. You know, also, um, we've, I've been putting together uh, since the beginning of this year, some short, simple videos that are like just a couple minutes long that people can just do to try things out to that are very accessible, um, can be as easy or as hard as you, you want them to be. And those are something else that people might want to try just to see, oh, do I notice this difference in my body? Oh my goodness, do I feel that here? Ah, and it brings in some awareness and it usually makes people feel a lot better as well. It sounds terrific. Rebecca, any closing thoughts for our listeners before we say goodbye for today? I think just you know, bringing it back to what you were saying before about the idea of deficiencies and excess. I think that is such a great point in how it relates to Chinese medicine. And I think it also relates to balance in general. And I don't mean balance is in not falling balance, but finding balance in our bodies and finding balance in our lives, which is another aspect of things that, that are, uh, that can threaten people's bone health, which is excess stress. So finding more joy and feeling more in control can actually be beneficial to the bones. That's wonderful advice. Rebecca, thanks so much for making the time today. Thank you so much, Michael. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Everyday Acupuncture. If so, please take a moment, click on the iTunes review button, and leave a review of the show. And be sure to tune in again next week.